Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. One of the things that I like so much about these podcasts are the interesting people we get to have conversations with about topics that can help improve care for mothers and babies, not only in Tennessee, but anywhere else this podcast is being listened to. We're going to take a moment and recognize some of the best quality improvement projects that were recognized at the 2023 annual TIPQC meeting. Centers across the state submitted quality improvement projects that they had recently completed. These submissions were judged by TIPQC medical directors and other state leaders. And the most impressive and effective projects were then recognized at the meeting. Today we have a chance to sit down with two project leaders who were awarded tops in their respective category. Our first guest is Dr. Anuj Sinha, who is also a neonatologist and serves as the NICU medical director for Children's Hospital at Erlanger. Dr. Sinha's project looked at the effect of the golden hour in the care of babies at the Erlanger NICU, where he practices. Our second guest is going to be Dr. Vineet Lamba. He is an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and a neonatologist with Regional One Health and at Labonner in Memphis. Dr. Lamba's project was designed to reduce bronchopulmonary dysplasia in very low birth weight infants. So I want to welcome both of you to our show today. But Dr. Sinha, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about how exactly you became a neonatologist. And then I want to focus in specifically on what sparked your interest in quality improvement and in safety. I started out wanting to be an adult cardiologist and I had never taken care of adult patients before. And then I realized kind of early, I wasn't very comfortable with my own mortality and it was really hard to see a lot of older patients pass away. So I got very depressed and then by grace of God, I did, I did a pediatrics rotation in Santa Clara Valley and I loved it. And I went to residency at Loma Linda. And as I was traveling through the different specialties, I got to really enjoy neonatology because it has a, a lot of math to it, which is one of my favorite things it has a primary care aspect to it, which is really nice. It's just a extremely interesting science. So that's kind of where I've been for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, so tell us how you got get interested in quality improvement as well and, and, and making sure that the stuff that we do for these uh, little babies that you have described gets better and better every day. Sure. Quality improvement in TME, you know, it's interesting how it started out so much with the maintenance of certification as being something that we kind of dreaded doing and it was always a side project. It was always something that tried to shove to the side as you actually did your, quote, medicine. But really the interesting thing is, is that when you realize the concept behind it, which is to truly verify that we are doing the best job that we can with the evidence that we have. I realized looking at the way Vanderbilt runs its institution, I was like, you know, 
everything that we do, all our major indicators should be quantified and that we should be able to demand a high level of care no matter where we are and what we do. Yeah, exactly right. One of my favorite sayings is, is, you know, our job is going to work every day, but also trying to make every day better for the patients that we take care of. It's, it's I think, an important, important yeah. component of medicine. And that's what you've done. I mean, you've been at Erlanger now for a couple of years and you presented this project. I think this is one of your first projects that you did at Erlanger, sort of recognizing the importance of the golden hour. And then even better than that, you won a top award for this project at the most recent TIPQC annual meeting. So let me first off congratulate you for that. Thank you. But to tell our audience about your project and exactly what you were able to do at Erlanger and what you were able to accomplish. I think the, the most important thing for from this project was that the idea was really brought to me by a number of people within our department. They had a feeling, they had tried this project before and unfortunately, with the previous group that was there, it had not worked very well. Of course, the issue being it really wasn't done in a systematic way. So I said, well, let, let's sit down and use the basic principles of doing this in a systematic way, see if we can make a difference. And I sat down with everybody who was there since I had never been at Erlanger and said, okay, well, how do you do things? And slowly but surely, we were able to help everyone understand the difference between a process issue and a provider issue. And as we work towards a goal, we realize, okay, these are process issues. It's not just one person that we need to set up an infrastructure that can handle what's going on. And so that's kind of where we, we began was, all right, what's the first step? And it was, well, we don't really know how to keep track of the time. I said, okay, well, that's a simple process, right? All we need is a stopwatch. And they're like, no, people get scared when there's a stopwatch. I said, I didn't say everyone has to see the stopwatch. <laughs> you just need somebody with a stopwatch and that's it. Who's just kind of keeping track and so on and so forth. And so as we started with this project, it was just one step at a time moving towards specific goals. We broke it up into little epochs. First was, how long does it take to get out of the delivery room? You want to stabilize the infant and then you want to take them to the NICU. Now, on average, it was somewhere around 45 minutes previously. Nobody really thought, okay, this is a big issue. What do you think we could do this in? And said, well, I think we could do this in about 15 minutes. And I said, well, what would you like to do there? And so we made a list of things that we wanted to do do a head circumference, do a weight, put the CPAP on, intubate these babies, don't intubate these babies, bring them over on CPAP, and so on and so forth. And as we streamlined the process and standardized the management of these kids, that was the first step. We were able to get them from the delivery room to the NICU in under 10 minutes. That's fantastic. I love the Golden Hour Project. I mean, that's that's been one of the first classic quality improvement projects that a lot of people turn to. It was one of the early TIPQC projects as well. And I love it so much that I think it's one of those things that every couple of years or so, we need to go back to it and look at our processes and look at what we're doing and make sure we're still meeting those standards. So for those hospitals that realize, hey, you know, I've not looked at this in a, in a while and they've heard about your success and sort of what you've done, what advice 
would you give to them? What are some things that you learned that you could share with those hospitals who are wanting to improve upon their processes and how they do things? I think the first is that it's not easy. It is a process. <laughs> there will be pitfalls. I, I, I love math, so I jumped to the math the first thing. And that was my first mistake was that that's kind of the later step. What you really want to do is build confidence with your team and trust. And once you have a sense of trust and friendship with the, your team, I think the most important thing that we did with quality improvement is to help people understand that we are not here to blame anybody. It was unfortunately kind of ingrained in the past that if something didn't go right, it was somebody's fault. And that's not how quality improvement works. Quality improvement works by looking at the process and how you do something such that if I were to walk away from the situation and leave it, the process would still continue. It wouldn't matter so much even who's in charge. It would just continue to go. And that was a big thing that we were able to separate. Oh, it's not one person causing one problem, which is preventing this. It's a series of things that we all do that are, are causing problems. And we said, okay, oh, okay, we can fix those. And slowly but surely, each time we went through and worked on this, we were able to remove any type of blaming that went on for mm -hmm. not for a lack of success. And yeah, I love that. That's that's like changing culture. Yeah. And that is so integral yeah. to, to, to pulling off a project and making a, a project successful. We did actually. It was interesting. You're talking about changing culture. I was looking at, well, okay, how would I get this study published? Because so many people have already done the golden hour and done it successfully. And I said, we did actually run into a problem where some people felt that there was some bullying going on, some of the leadership in order to get a patient into the golden hour. And I thought, okay, well, I have a simple solution for that. I disbanded the committee. I completely disbanded the whole committee and I got rid of it. No more meetings, no more nothing. Here's the paperwork that we follow. This is the process. I left the process in place, but I removed everybody who was in charge of it for six months. And I said, let's see what happens. If the numbers show us that things go horrible, then we know that it is maybe this. But if the numbers stay, I bet you pretty much that it's not anybody's one voice. I, I would say that it's probably more that the process has become the culture. And that's exactly what we did. The last six months of this project out of the three years, nobody was looking at anything. I just had people fill out forms and we quietly collected the data behind the scenes. No meetings, no nothing, no feedback, no emails. And sure enough, the data stayed the same. And so to help me understand, it was, it was not. And I bet people weren't too sad they, they had to take another meeting off their calendar, right. were they? <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what I've kind of done. I'm like, look, we, we want to turn this into the golden week, just like they did in other institutions. But until, you know, we're ready to do it and ready to do it the same way, you know, we won't, we won't make another meeting. <laughs> yeah. So what's been the key to, to able to sustain some of the gains that you've made? What do you think has been the most important thing that you've done? We, we had a very nice pre-huddle process where we, everybody sat down and anticipated what to do. And the analogy that one of the lead nurses, Rachel Castile, 
used was that like pit crew for Formula One race cars. And everything is synchronized and everybody has a job and everybody knows exactly what that job is. And they do that one job. Really. That's what we, we sat down in our pre-cuddle and we said, okay, you're the so-and-so, the guy who's going to change their front right tire. And that's it. And when you assign that duty to them, it took a lot of stress off of them to say, okay, what do I need to do? It was, I know what I need to do. I need to change the lug nuts on the front right tire and put a new tire on and that was it. And once we got that culture in our pre-huddle, everybody knew what their role was right away. And so they anticipated what they were supposed to do next. Nobody had to tell them to do anything. They knew where they were going and we just let the process happen. Man, I absolutely love that. So how has this impacted what's going on with the babies at Erlanger? Have you been able to actually record some improvements in care and improved outcomes for those babies? And tell us about that. Well, we are obviously as part of TIPQC looking at our mortality. And we, we've had a lot of success with hypothermia, euglycemia, obviously, and TPN administration. The gains, I think, are going to be slow to reveal. But I think previously there wasn't a very aggressive, previous to this group, I don't think there was a super aggressive approach to infants under 24 weeks. And our group put together a policy to help with a shared decision-making mentality of working with families who wanted to have resuscitation of smaller infants. And so now over the over a period of four years, we're looking at our mortality and tracking it. I haven't seen probably a statistical change in it yet, but considering we changed out the entire group of physicians four years ago and NMPs for that matter, we'll probably take a couple more years to kind of really see that trend come to fruition. Man, well, congratulations on on what you've uh, been able to accomplish so far. And certainly I look forward to working with you on more quality improvement projects. Dr. Sinha, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today and certainly hearing about your project. And now let's talk with our other poster presenter, Dr. Vineet Lamba. Dr. Lamba, thanks for joining us today. Are you okay if I call you Vineet? Yeah, perfectly fine, Scott. So, hey, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how exactly did you become a neonatologist and what sparked your interest in quality improvement? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Scott. So, you know, I did my fellowship at in neonatology at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And then after that, I've joined faculty here at UTHSC in Memphis since 2019. And, you know, my interest in patient quality and safety really started quite early in fellowship, where we worked on a really robust antimicrobial stewardship program using QI methodology as part of our scholarly activity during fellowship. And, you know, it was, it was really quite satisfying to see how just simple things to standardize care, minimize variability, really have such a positive impact on patient outcomes. And that's something that I've continued since we've been here at Memphis. At Lebanon, we collaborate with the Children's Hospital Consortium and the BPD Collaborative to try to improve the care of our babies with severe BPD. And then at Regional One, we work with the Vermont Oxford Network to improve our very low birth weight babies. So we, I work on a lot of different quality improvement areas, but really where my heart lies is trying to improve BPD care. 
Yeah, so man, I, I personally am so thankful you are in Tennessee now and because you have done some fantastic quality improvement in, you, in your career so far and specifically with the group over there at Memphis. And congratulations for winning one of those awards at the TIPQC annual meeting. And I want you to tell our audience a little bit about the project that you recently started at Regional One Health and, and how you were able to improve bronchopulmonary dysplasia outcomes in very low birth weight infants. Yeah, thank you, Scott. So, you know, we've we've been working on reducing our BPD and we have very low birth weight babies at Regional One for the past couple of years and it's still a you know in progress project. But we decided to start focusing to work on this because over the past couple of years, like at probably many centers around the country, you know, we've seen a steady increase in our BPD rates. For several years we were doing fairly good with the, our BPD rates being consistently around 20% of all VLBW babies based on our one reports, but that had been steadily going up. And at the time that we started the project, we were at about 30% of all very low birth weight babies. So what we first did, and I think one thing that really helped us kind of have a very solid start to the project was we first sat down and looked through almost a year's worth of VLBW admissions and their charts to kind of try to analyze what were our care practices, how they had changed over time, and how some of the things that contribute to BPD, you know, how those care practices were different in our center compared to other centers based on published data. So that way we we hopefully identified, you know, really key targeted areas that we could improve on, which would hope which eventually hopefully improves our BPD rates. You know, some of the things that we worked on early on, one of the first things we worked on was trying to reduce our extubation failure rates. What we saw is that in this population, we were averaging extubation failure rates around 35 to 36%. And, you know, we chose to define extubation failure as the need for reintubation within seven days of a planned extubation rather than the traditional 48 to 72 hours. Because, you know, there is data that shows that babies who remain extubated for more than seven days, their risk, future risk of BPD or death is significantly lower. So when we did that, you know, we saw that extubation failure rates in literature reported anywhere from as low as 10% to as high as 40 to 50%, but 30 to 35% for a center of our size was quite a little bit on the higher side compared to other places. So what we did is, you know, we implemented a bundle that involved always extubating to NIPPV because that's definitely one of the things that's been shown to reduce the risk of extubation failure compared to CPAP or high flow. Also giving an additional peri-extubation dose of caffeine. And given that we use a RAM candler, which is a leaky interface, and, you know, for all of its pros and cons, we still choose to use it. What we decided to do is, to set a higher post-extubation peep by at least two centimeters of water on the pre-extubation peep. And you know, it took a little bit of time to get everyone convinced to this and implement the bundle, but we've been doing this for more than 12 months now. And over that time, what we've seen is that our extubation failure rate is now consistently in the single digits around eight to 9%. So we started a pretty dramatic decrease with that. And it led to an overall about 10% reduction in our total intubated days in the first month of life because fewer babies were you know, getting reintubated because of failed extubations. The second thing that we worked on is that 
using our one data reports and some of the baseline data we collected we saw that you know at the same time that we were having higher bpd rates our center like many other centers had been trying to go you know utilize more non invasive ventilation early in life but at the same time what we saw is that we were seeing more babies getting surfactant late later in life more than more than 2 hours after life of birth, excuse me more than 2 hours after birth so what we did is we again looked at the reasons behind this and implemented a bundle which involved giving surfactant in the delivery room for any baby that happened to be intubated in the delivery room as part of routine resuscitation and really set very strict criteria that was enforced by the entire team and respiratory therapists to try to target early surfactant and we went from about 70% of babies who got surfactant getting it less than 2 hours of life to about 90% of babies getting more than 90% of babies now getting early surfactant before 2 hours of life the total number of babies that we're giving surfactant has remained stable but we basically worked on kind of recognizing which babies we were going to be giving surfactant to anyway but just you know doing things to give it sooner and i think that's also one of the things along with the reduction in extubation failure that helped reduce our ventilator days so far these two processes have been in place for almost a year now and have been working really well and they're well established and we you know pretty good buy in in the entire group the other things that we've been working on is so as we went along this process you know we realized that we our babies really dichotomized into two different populations some babies you know that we could extubate early give them early surfactant when needed and then they were non invasive and did great and then you know and i'm sure everyone's practice sees a similar situation and the other babies that you do everything that you can but they're still intubated because they you know need to be so for those babies what we're doing is right now have a bundle focusing on you know three things one is early gentle ventilation where we use a mix of pressure control and volume ventilation in our unit and you know while there is evidence that volume targeted ventilation may be superior when it comes to the risk of bpd there has been a, a little bit of barrier to uniformly adopting that but you know one of the things we've been doing is trying to collect what is the duration of period that babies are being exposed to to tidal volumes greater than 6 ml per kilo when they're on pressure mode or you know high pips pips greater than 25 when they're on volume mode and our rts have really been you know critical in collecting this data and what we saw is that in the first week of life you know all the good intentions we were still exposing these babies to volume trauma barrier trauma for about 15% of their total intubated time which i thought was quite high so you know we've empowered our rts to you know set regularly set pressure alarms and volume alarms and notify the team if it's alarming rather than just going up and up in limits so that other things can be done and with the, with that and some other ventilation guidelines that we've implemented we've been able to reduce that total duration of exposure to volume trauma or barrier trauma from about 15% down to about 9% of the total time in the first week of life that's still a relatively recent change that we've made but the hope is that you know less time spent in that volume trauma barrier trauma range in the first week of life means hopefully less lung damage and these babies can get extubated 
But in spite of these things, as you know, as you're aware, some babies do develop quite severe lung disease early in life. So this is a lovely, beautiful, complex project that you have described so far. And I love complex things that you're breaking, quality improvement projects that you're having to break down into processes, which is exactly what you described that you do to conquer this huge problem of bronchopulmonary dysplasia that all of us in neonatal intensive care units have to have to deal with. So big congratulations on, on what you've been able to do, break these processes down and begin to attack and fix the problem. Tell our audience real quick on what type of results you have seen so far as you have begun to tackle this. What are your BPD rates doing? In spite of all of these measures, you know, there are some babies that no matter what you do, they do, they are on a trajectory to develop severe lung disease. And what we've done for that is analyzed our data again, had a good understanding of our baseline to formulate some risk-based steroid, postnatal steroid strategies. You know, as BPD rates go up across the country, I think our our approach towards postnatal steroids is also kind of swinging back in, in the other direction. And, you know, the AAP revised their postnatal steroid policy last year in 2022 to reinforce that, you know, while there is risk of postnatal steroids, there probably is benefit in the, in the high-risk babies. And the key is really recognizing who are those high-risk babies early on enough in life because the most benefit of steroid is really between the first week of life to about 40 days of life or so. So what we did is, you know, we went back and looked at what was our utilization rate of postnatal steroids and then put all of those babies' information into the NICHD BPD risk calculator to see what was kind of the mean combined risk of moderate, severe, grade 2, grade 3 BPD in death and what we saw is that on average, we were giving steroids to babies who had a, this combined risk at about 50%, but our mean age at which we were giving steroids was about 35 days. So now what we're doing is that, you know, starting from right at birth, we're routinely assessing BPD risk using the NICHT2. And for babies who remain intubated by 14 days of life, where there's no other thing that's holding them back from extubation, if their combined risk is more than 50%, which is what has been our historic point at which we were using steroids, we elect to give steroids earlier on in life, of course, after dis discussion with family. So the idea is that we don't necessarily increase our total steroid utilization, but rather target those babies a little bit earlier on in life, the babies that we would have been using them steroids on regardless. That's great. Fantastic. I mean, way to attack a wonderfully complex problem like bronchopulmonary dysplasia with breaking it down into all these different processes and all these different things that you have to take into account as you're trying to, to fix a problem. So tell our audience a little bit about how you've been able to improve things and what your BPD rates have done. That's one of the things I love about quality improvement and particularly such a complex thing like BPD. You know, there is no one single cause and there is no one single treatment. So since we started doing this, we've seen an improvement in our total intubated days. We've had a reduction by about 10%. But you know, BPD is a multifactorial disease and I expect it's going to take some time before we start seeing a downshift in our BPD rates. What we have already started seeing is that we've started seeing a shift in the grades of BPD where we are now seeing more mild and moderate and less severe BPD. But there hasn't been a 
a consistent shift in our overall rates of BPD quite as yet. Yeah, I'm convinced you're going to get there. And for our listeners, too, as, as we're planning ahead and thinking about what TIPQC is going to be doing, I think you've already heard a little bit about our Tennessee's Tiniest Babies project. And Anit is going to be involved with the design of that toolkit, along with some friends at Vanderbilt and some friends at Erlanger and some friends at the East Tennessee Children's Hospital as we get this project up and going and designed. So you can look forward to more hearing more from him as we develop this for our state. And specifically thinking about that, Vanit, and as we talk about how we can attack BPD at a state level, what are some things that you have learned doing this at your facility that can help us do this at a multi-institutional level? I know you've talked about empowering your RTs, you've talked about trying to get cohesiveness as a group and doing things in a, in a standard way, what lessons would you share with us there? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that really helped us locally is having a good understanding of some of these, you know, minor care practices, things like rates of extubation failure, early CPAP, etc. And really one of the challenges was also having enough data or points out there to compare yourself to. So I think, you know, for other centers in our state, it would potentially be beneficial to kind of have every center analyze their care practices, you know, common things that we can all commonly agree do contribute to the burden of BPD and see if there are higher performing centers and lower performing centers in those individual areas so that each center can learn from each other about, you know, what are they doing that targets that particular risk factor for BPD. Exactly right. And and that is so true. And that's that's true of quality improvement. I mean, this is something that is not going to, you're not going to be able to fix a problem in, in one day or two days or a week. It, it takes long-term effort, long-term commitment. And that's what I appreciate about both you and Dr. Sinha spending some time with us today on our podcast, sharing the projects that, that you both have participated in and helped improve the care of babies in each one of your hospitals. So if your hospital is a part of TIPQC, we want you to start working on a project now because we want to interview on this podcast next year. Get those projects up and running so you can submit what you and your hospital have done at the TIPQC annual meeting in 2024. So to all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.